Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 226 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I am joined by a science educator and nature hype man to sing praises for some of our favorite true bugs, cicadas. We discuss how and why cicada choruses sing the song of the summer, why they spend so much of their lives underground before emerging, and what's so special about prime numbers anyway, the real parasitic fungus that inspired a cicada-themed Pokemon, and so much more. Just the Zoo of Us presents Cicadas with Nick Van Hacker. Ellen Weatherford, I'm here with your favorite animal review podcast, Just the Zoo of Us. I'm so excited this week to have a new friend. This is Nick Van Acker. Say hi, Nick. Hi, how are you doing? I'm so good. I'm so excited to talk to you. Nick, what are your pronouns? My pronouns are he, him. Nick, I'm so excited to talk to you. Before we talk about our little bug buddy, let's talk about Nick. Nick, you mentioned to me that you work in a museum educating people about the really cool critters that you work with there. Uh, let our friends listening know what you, what it is that you do with these cool little critters. Absolutely. So these cool little critters that you mentioned are children. <laughs> um, I work at a children's museum. Uh, I haven't been working there for very long. I've been there for about the last year and a half now. But before I started working at a children's museum, I have been working in informal science education for about the last decade. So I've done all sorts of things with critters across the board, both animal critters and also human critters as well. Having kids of my own in my house. It is a critter wrangling position. It really is very similar. You gotta wrangle some critters. Yeah, I worked at a zoo for a little while, and the parallels between cleaning up after animals and cleaning up after children. Um, I have a, a son of my own, so I can say this. It's okay. But um, yeah, the, the parallels are, are a little uncanny sometimes. And sometimes very similar training regimens too, right? It's like offer a treat oh, yeah. when a desired behavior is performed. Oh, absolutely. And figuring out enrichment to make sure that they don't destroy their exhibit is... Uh, it's, it's, uh... <laughs> Always providing enrichment in the enclosure. It's important. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's making sure they have enough to do or else they'll uh, yeah, just run around in circles. And uh, that's a great behavior sometimes, depending on what you're trying to do. But it just depends. <laughs> Child management is great. But I also love, especially from working like in a museum with little guys, little critters, oh, little yeah. animal friends. What does that look like for you? Yeah. So my path to get here has been kind of odd. So when I was in college, I got my degree in zoology and a minor in museum studies. And I started off working at natural history museums. There's a great natural history museum on campus where I worked. So I worked there as a student for several years, and then they hired me after I graduated. So I did all sorts of stuff with critters where um, just doing informal science education. A lot of my focus was on paleontology because we had a really great paleontology collection and some great paleontology curators. So a lot of the collections were based in that, and the educational work I did was based in that. But I also had a really great relationship with the entomology department on campus. We had some really great entomology displays at the museum and actually had a uh, what they call the bug house on campus, which was full of all sorts of live insects and pinned insects. And so we partnered with them on a lot of activities. From there, I basically just pursued any sort of science education that really interested me, some of it related to animals, some of it not. I worked at a planetarium, running the planetarium for a while. Um, I've worked at the Department of Natural Resources for our state, doing all sorts of great stuff when it came to nature education. So there's been just a lot of parallel paths alongside animals that I've taken. I haven't done any direct study of any particular species, but I've done a lot of education related to a lot of different species and dove deep into some, some certain species over time. I love that. I love the branching a little bit into the bone zone, into the paleontology field. Yeah. You got bones and bugs. That's a good overlap. Like, I feel like there's a strong overlapping section in the Venn diagram between people who are into bugs and people who are into fossils. Oh, yeah. There's actually a lot of interesting things talking about our species of the day today, or our, maybe our genus of the day, depending on how deep we get into it. But um, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting stuff that I was reading about the paleontology of cicadas specifically, which is really interesting and really cool and stuff I didn't know. 
People often forget about the cool arthropods and invertebrates in fossils. You know, like when you're talking about more like mainstream, like paleontology, media and stuff, it's always about the big guys. It's always about the dinosaurs. They don't really get into the fact that like there's bug fossils too. Oh yeah, one of my one of my friends on TikTok recently just posted a video from the little Brea tar pits, and there's always you know people talk about the dire wolves and people talk about the smilodons, but they don't talk about the fact that they find insects and birds and all sorts of stuff in the little Brea tar pits. And I had no idea until I saw this video, and it makes sense. Of course, the tar pits are just collecting everything that falls in but there was a really cool fossil that they showed there was i think it was a grasshopper or it might have been a praying mantis now of course that's that's terrible i don't remember it was like it was a great video i'm so sorry but um <laughs> but they showed this it was just amazingly preserved because of the tar this this fantastic insect oh it was a dragonfly that's what it was it was a oh, dragonfly that's cool and so it was cool you could see because i was picturing it. i was like no because you could see the wings spread out and that you know and this was a, a recent enough specimen it was probably from the holocene it was within the last 10,000 years, 20,000 years, whatever. But still, it was just amazing to see this insect that had been preserved so well over time. I guess maybe the bug fossils that get left behind as like imprints or something like that, maybe get overshadowed a little bit by the whole entire dudes in amber. <laughs> like you just have the bug. <laughs> When you have like amber, it's like, oh, that's the whole thing right there. I don't know what more you could possibly want from a fossil. Well, and it is so funny, too, because I saw that when I was doing some of the research where they're like, yeah, we don't really know how old these bugs are because you can find little bits and pieces of them. But bugs so often, and this happens a lot with invertebrates, but they so often will go through molts or they will, you know, lose a shell and get a new one or all sorts of things will happen. And so you have just kind of like this insect soup that's left over where there's just these little bits and pieces hanging out. But then, yeah, we can see a whole insect just sitting in front of you, especially some of the really old ones from the Jurassic or, you know, from from so long ago. It's amazing to look at that and just be like, yeah, that's a bug. I, I could see that out <laughs> in my yard today, except this one is 65 million years old. It's, you know, it's it's very cool. It feels validating to know that the prehistoric dinosaurs were also menaced by the same <laughs> little problems as us. Like they also probably had to swat away mosquitoes. Well, and I think about it so often, too, like even going all the way back to the Permian period, there are these giant, giant insects and there are these millipedes that lived, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, you know, the massive ones that are, you know, six feet long. And just thinking about them, you know, you can think of a dinosaur as like, oh, they had this complex structure and they were trying to hunt and survive. And like, what's a millipede thinking about today? that's different than what a millipede would think about a hundred million years ago. Like even this giant bug is still just wandering around being like, mm, yeah, that looks like a good leaf to eat. I guess I'll, <laughs> I'll eat that and lay down for a bit. Eat like, leaf, just... dig dirt. That's it. Got two items on the agenda. <laughs> that's all they've been doing. God, I wish that were me. Like I, I wish the, I wish that stupid fish had never climbed onto the land. I could still be eating leaves and digging in dirt. Now we have taxes. Oh, it's just Stupid, too much. Stupid, man. The millipedes had it figured out. They're like, nah, no. See, we know better. Nope. Have leg, eat dirt. That's all they needed. <laughs> so the animal that we're talking about today is an animal we've sort of dipped our toe into on this podcast in the past. I talked about the periodical cicadas. I think a couple years ago when the when the big brood was resurfacing. But it's so much more than just the periodical ones, because I think they're the most like the ones that you will see in the news the most. But there's so much more than that. So for people who are listening who maybe aren't from an area where these guys are really common, which, Lord, your nights must be quiet. I envy you. That must be nice not to have the trees screaming at all times. But for people who maybe aren't from a place where these little guys are found, could you introduce us to what cicadas are? Absolutely. Cicadas are really, really cool insects. Um, they're one of my favorite insects in the entire world because they are so unique in so many ways. They definitely are insects, but they have so much weird stuff about them. They feel like really charismatic insects to me. Especially recently. I feel like in the last few years, I have seen so much like jewelry and art. And like, I feel like cicadas are really having like 
an aesthetic moment. Yeah, and I think, and I actually have some theories about this. There's no, not scientific theories or anything, but um, <laughs> as I've been doing some research into them, and we'll get into it, but the periodical cicadas are periodical. You know, they only come out either every 13 or 17 years. And so it really seems like as I was diving into some of the research that there's sort of these cycles for cicadas, where a couple of years before a big brood of cicadas emerges, there's a bunch of scientific interest in them because they know that they're coming. So there's a bunch of papers that are published in like, 2003, which was right before, not the last time, but the time before Brood 10 came out, because they came out in 2004, and then same sort of thing, right before Brood 10 came out, there was a bunch, and then right now, there's another, it's a double brood that's going to be coming out this summer, and so I've been seeing all sorts of things, like there were just a bunch of articles put up, you know, a day or so before we recorded this, where everyone's like, the cicadas are coming, and there's, you know, <laughs> I've been seeing all sorts of pictures, and people being like, yeah, cicada mania, it's again, it's happening again, and so I think it is just kind of, it's like when your favorite band is touring on concert and they're coming to your hometown <laughs> and everyone starts selling their t-shirts and everyone starts being like, yeah, this is the best band in the world. We're going to see them. And like, yeah, I think it's just a lot of people get really excited right before they emerge, which is so cool and not something people really do with many bugs. So I, I love it. I think it's amazing. Yeah, that's true. They do get a lot more like positive hype than other bugs. Like I feel like with just about any other bug, like this massive emergence of giant swarms of them would not be welcomed with open arms. You'd be getting a lot of scare pieces. And I feel like pest control companies would be really having a moment with that. Like, here's why you need us to come spray your yard. But yeah, cicadas, people are like, no, we just like them. I think it's just there's the sheer number of them that people just kind of accept it's going to happen and then move to the excitement <laughs> more than anything. They're like, literally billions of insects will emerge from the earth. There's nothing we can do about it. We might as well just roll with it and let them land on us and have a good time for a couple of weeks before they leave again. <laughs> like just make peace with it. It's like a meteor shower. You could you could make a claim that you're like, oh, there's rocks raining down on the earth. We should all hide in our homes. Or we can be like, we could lay out on a blanket and have some fun. And yeah, people have a really positive attitude toward it, which is awesome. I feel like the vibes would be different if, like, billions of spiders were about to emerge yes. from the ground. <laughs> well, I think that that is part of it, too, is that cicadas don't do anything to us. They are part of a group that's called Hemiptera. They're the true bugs. And so all of these bugs have, like, these really sharp, piercing mouth parts. They're things like stink bugs and assassin bugs and aphids. And, like, some of these, you know, will use their sharp, piercing mouth parts. They can bite into us. Bed bugs are part of this group, too. But cicadas just use them to, to eat trees. And they don't even really hurt the trees or plants they'll hurt you know young ones if a tree was just planted and then it gets overwhelmed with cicadas of course that tree is going to have a bad time but any mature tree isn't going to be affected by them and so i think it is just a lot of you know we leave you alone you leave us alone we just get to see a cool thing it's like when in florida when all of the like hundreds and hundreds of manatees come into like the springs and stuff oh yeah like yes these guys are giant and yes there's hundreds of them but they're not doing anything like just let them be there they're kind of cute <laughs> just eating lettuce and hanging out it's great just let them be there. It's fine. The cicadas, it's just little guys that are here. They're ready to scream. That's all. Yeah, they get to make some some loud music for us. And then a couple months later, or I don't, I don't know how long it takes for them to be done with what it is that they're doing, but then they're gone. We don't have to deal yeah, with them anymore. Exactly. Some of them I've seen are only, it's like a week maybe, that they, they'll appear and then they'll disappear again for 17 years. So it's, uh, it's more of an event than anything else. Burn bright, burn fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Scream loud. It's me going to a party once every like 10 years. Yes. <laughs> and everyone says, Ellen! Everyone's so excited to see you and then you can disappear back into the darkness. <laughs> Show up one time, rarely, but be really loud when you're there. <laughs> That's the way to do it. You make an impact, you get in fast, get out fast, grab a handful of popcorn shrimp, and you're, you're good to go. You mentioned that they have these cool, really cool like mouth parts that are made for eating trees. These are bugs, right? So there's going to be some interesting body morphology things built in. This brings us to our first category that we rate animals on, which is effectiveness for us. This is physical adaptations like tools built into the animal's body that let them do a good job of the things they're trying to do. Maybe they're trying to find their own food or not become food themselves. Nick, what do you give cicadas out of 10 for effectiveness. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I think this is a good time for us to get into some of the details about what cicadas do, because it's real weird. Overall, I want to give them about an 8 out of 10. Um, And I go back and forth about this, because it's either you can give them, like, a million out of 10, or, like, two, depending (laughs) on how you're looking at it. And so I figured 8 out of 10 is, like, a good middle ground. Cicadas are really, like, multi-terrain beasts when it comes to physical adaptations. There's a couple of different types of cicadas. There are the periodical cicadas that you mentioned, and there are also annual cicadas. Periodical cicadas are the ones that come out every 13 or 17 years. Annual cicadas usually have, like, a 2- to 10-year life cycle, but they're going to be emerging every single year. There's going to be at least a couple of individuals in every area that are emerging every single year. But all of their life cycle is pretty similar to each other. They are going to live underground for a long time, right when their life cycle starts, when they are nymphs, which are basically just like little baby insects. They live underground for sometimes a really long period of time. They dig around under the ground, and they use these sharp mouth parts that we talked about. They'll pierce into the roots of plants, the roots of trees, and basically just suck on tree juices for about a decade sometimes, (laughs) depending on how long it is. But they usually don't move around very much, but they still do have this adaptation where they're able to survive underground for a really long time and they're really well adapted to it they have these you know front limbs that are great for digging and then after they're underground they are going to emerge of course that's the big thing the emergence and depending on the type of cicada we're talking about that emergence might go a couple of different ways but the digging really comes in handy here they dig up out of the ground and then they transition from being these, you know, little ground creatures to almost becoming architects. So they will build this massive turret up out of the ground because they're waiting for a really particular temperature. They're waiting until it's, you know, a a nice spring evening in like late April, a nice, you know, summer evening in early June, and they will emerge from the ground but sometimes they're not ready yet. So they'll build these tall soil towers where they can kind of peek their heads out and just, you know, right when they're about ready to go, they'll check the temperature, make sure it's all good. And these towers get huge. They can be like a couple inches tall, almost like a foot tall. I've seen some really, really tall towers that cicadas have built. So they go from tunneling, then they become architects. And then once they emerge, they become like rock climbers, basically. Um, They need to go through uh, a series of molts underground, but then they go through one more final molt after they emerge. And so they'll climb a tree, which for a cicada, which is only a couple inches long, is a feat after they've been digging. But they climb, you know, all the way up this tree, and then they will go through this massive body change where they emerge. When they're a nymph, they, of course, don't have any wings. They don't have a lot of the traits of an adult cicada that we're used to seeing. But they molt off the shell, and then they, like I said, are multi-terrain that they're able to fly. And so they can fly out and uh, land up on top of a tree and then go through the whole process of trying to find a mate, which is a whole other thing that we can dive into, but they'll they'll scream really loud. They're one of the loudest insects. They can reach up to 100 decibels when there's a whole group of them singing. They find a mate, you know, they, they mate, and then the females have this just really, really incredible system of laying eggs. Like many insects, they have ovipositors, but cicada ovipositors have to dig into a tree, which is really heavy. And so their ovipositors are actually covered in metal, which is insane there's iron what? and there's hold on all hold sorts on of stuff yeah yeah what kind of metal <laughs> tell me more about this <laughs> it's it's insane i was looking this up because i was like how on earth they they'll stick they'll dig a little like v-shaped groove in the tree and then stick their ovipositor in there and i was like how does that not break and it turns out it's because it's covered in metal so there's a whole list i think there's like 14 inorganic metals that make up the ovipositor (sighs) Um, but they kind of line the edge of it almost like like a blade basically so that they can stab into the tree to lay their eggs Um, but there's potassium magnesium iron zinc calcium like all sorts of different stuff that is wild to me it's crazy body is able to like because i know those are all metals that are in our human diets right yeah we we incorporate those metals into our body in different ways but definitely not consolidating them into like a material <laughs> yeah no we don't we don't have just like a an iron covered arm so that we can reach into our fridge or so we can you know do whatever. we should 
have we thought about it? I guess we do kind of with bones a little bit, but like, no, it's it's a very good idea, honestly. Or like have, uh, you know, metal on our tongues to help open cans or something would be, would be great. Now on the topic of the sound that the cicadas make, how are they making this sound? To my knowledge, they don't have, you know, little vocal cords and a little mouth that they can scream from. So like, where is the sound coming from? Yeah, so um, it comes from something that they have on their bodies, which are called Timbles. It's a structure on their exoskeleton and it is corrugated like cardboard where, you know, it's on the inside of a piece of cardboard where it's got all those ridges on there. And so I believe that it is similar to that. I don't think they do stridulation though, like crickets do. Because, you know, crickets will make the the sound by rubbing their legs together on their wings, almost like they're playing a violin. And I Mm. think that it's different for cicadas it's something where they they use the timbals but then it's almost like more like a drum where they're able to to vibrate it if i remember right it would have to be right because i feel like with crickets they get kind of staccato like sort of little short bursts of sound but with a cicada it's like a long sustained like droning sound yeah oh okay so i just looked it up real quick because i was i was really curious um so this is just from wikipedia so you can take it or leave it for for what it is (laughs) i'm pro wikipedia all right oh me too for sure no but then also i've edited some wikipedia articles and i'm like if i can do it i don't know Um, but only about things I'm, I'm I know about. But yeah, it sounds like it is exactly what I thought that is. So they're um, they're oh, they even use the word corrugated. Look at me. But yeah, they're they're corrugated on top of the timbals, and then there is a resonance chamber inside. So they vibrate these little structures on their exoskeleton, and uh, it's almost like like a the way that a snare drum works, where when you hit it, it's got some some resonance, and it creates you know that kind of sustained sound. That is so cool, and it is. You're not kidding. It is loud. It is like a very iconic sound of the American Southeast, where during the summer, that is just the soundtrack. It's going to be cicadas, not just like, you know, like you mentioned earlier, there's not just the periodical ones. Like there are cicada populations that come out every single year. And you know, during like the spring and summertime, the woods are going to be screaming for a few months. And that's just going to be like part of the season. (laughs) It's going to be loud. Oh, yeah. Well, and I remember growing up before I knew what cicadas were, I just assumed it was the sound of summer. I thought that it was, you know, you hear people talk about it, that I thought the sun maybe made the sound or I thought the trees (laughs) made it. Like, this is when I was very young, but I didn't know it was bugs. I heard the sound and I was just like, yeah, that's the sound it makes when it gets hot during the summer. I don't know. I think I associated it with like, you know how sometimes when it's really, really hot, hot surfaces will have the sort of like waves over them? Yeah, exactly. I thought it was just like part of that. Yeah, and I thought it was just, yeah, the sound that heat makes and I'd be sitting out in the backyard and I'm like, oh yeah, must be warm out because, you know, there's all that screaming going on. (laughs) I feel like when I hear the sound of, because I saw a video the other day that had like, it must have been taken during a time when cicadas were out because you could hear cicadas in the background and I feel like I could feel my body temperature climbing. I was like, oh. Uh, it makes me like feel warm. Yeah. <laughs> I have like a Pavlovian response to the sound of cicadas. <laughs> it's really interesting too, because you're talking about there's a periodical and the annual, um, and they actually will go about it in different ways for when they're making sound. The reason that they make their sound is to try and attract a mate, right? So it's the males that are going to be producing the sound to try and attract a female. But for periodical cicadas, they have their emergences, you know, like we said, once every 13, 17 years. And so they are coming all out at once. All the Males will get together in one tree and they'll all start singing together. They call it a chorus tree. And all the females in the whole area will hear that because all those males are singing together. And then they'll make a beeline for that tree and find a male that they like. And they go through a whole thing where they shake their wings at each other. It's very, very cute. Um, But then with the annual cicadas, there's not as many of them emerging every year. So they still sing, but they have to be really careful about it because if they're singing and they attract a predator that's the end for them. Whereas if the periodical cicadas where there's a billion of them, if they're singing, they attract a predator, there's going to be so many in each tree that, you know, a couple will get eaten, but they're not going to be able to get the whole tree. So the periodical cicadas are super loud and they're singing proud and they don't, you know, they don't really care. But the <laughs> annual cicadas, they'll, they'll be singing and then it's almost like a cricket or a grasshopper that, you know, if you get too close to them or if, you know, a predator gets too close to them, then they, they quiet down for a little bit. <laughs> 
actually read a really interesting thing too when i was looking this up about their singing i learned that there's over 3200 species of cicada so this isn't true for all of them but there are several species that are actually able to regulate their body temperature to allow them to keep singing for longer which i thought was insane because insects don't do that that's true dedication yeah it was it was nonsense and so they were talking about there's certain cicadas that if it's too hot for them obviously they're not comfortable so they won't be singing but they're actually able to sweat which is crazy they're able to drink the the sap from trees and then extrude it out through their exoskeleton and use evaporative cooling whoa just the same way that we do when we sweat and so they're able to cool their bodies down and then they can keep singing keep doing what they're trying to do and then there are other insects there's other cicadas that are able to increase their body temperature up to 40 degrees higher than the ambient temperature for the exact same reasons they can keep singing into the evening which was oh it was gosh. nuts it was insane i had no idea the commitment to the bit like the yeah, show right? must go on we're not letting a little freeze stop us this is the most like theater kid energy <laughs> <laughs> from these cicadas <laughs> it really is they're like i need to do this it is my moment i've been underground for 17 years and finally i have a stage <laughs> the show must go on <laughs> the spotlight is mine i will stop at nothing i don't care if biology tells me i'm an invertebrate and i shouldn't be doing this i'm gonna find a way anyway <laughs> life finds a way yeah. When we first got into effectiveness, you mentioned that there were some cases in which you could argue giving cicadas a two. Yeah. How? Why are we roasting cicadas? So there's so many good things about them, right? They're like I said, they're all-terrain vehicles. They have so many great adaptations. But when you look at an individual cicada and you start looking at the individual physical attributes of them, they're not very good at being alive. If I'm honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I think this is true for even, for even things like like behavior when we talk about that. Like, they're amazing, amazing insects as a whole. But on the individual level, they really, especially periodical cicadas, they really just exist to be eaten. Kind of the whole point of it is that they're going to be throwing all of the cicadas all out at once. And it's sort of a you can't get all of us mentality. <laughs> but the, on the individual level, you can get that one. Some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> it's a sacrifice we need to make for the whole population. But it's just, you know, on the individual level, when they're underground, they're eaten by so many different things. They actually, you can see right before a cicada year, there's always an increase in the mole population because the moles are having a field day eating all these cicadas that are coming up to the surface. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. And once they emerge, they're eaten by almost everything. I have a list of all of their predators here, but it's literally like basically anything that you could think might eat a cicada absolutely <laughs> will eat a cicada. It's birds and reptiles and amphibians and dogs and cats are like huge predators for them. <laughs> um, small mammals, large mammals, <laughs> like it's literally everything. Have you seen videos? There's more than one out there because it happens all the time and every single time it's fantastic. Of videos of a dog with a cicada in its mouth. Have you seen Oh yes, I have seen that as buzzing. <laughs> it's always this dog that has it's clearly a dog with like nary a brain cell to be seen this dog already didn't know what it was doing it was already getting a little ambitious and it has caught a cicada and the dog is holding the cicada and the cicada is still singing it's still going it's just buzzing inside the dog's mouth which is very funny to me when you mention that the singing is for the purpose of finding a mate because this feels like now you're dragging someone else down with you yeah, and he's just like, well, I have I have my last hurrah before I go. Might as well try again. <laughs> he's like, happens. is anyone interested in joining me in this dog's mouth? <laughs> like, Sir, you're being eaten. I am, I'm flicking my wings very nicely if you would like to come join me. <laughs> <laughs> it's real warm in here. <laughs> no, but it's just, and it's so funny where they literally, I mean, like I said, on the individual level, they don't have many adaptations to stop them from being eaten. They're also, there's been a couple of studies that say they're not very good at flying either, even though they have these wings. I mean, it was really interesting. The ones I looked into, they said they basically have too much chitin in their wings to be able to fly well compared to other insects. They're just like loaded with chitin, which is the the hard material that makes up the, the insect outsides, basically their exoskeleton. It's all made of this material. 
Yeah, it's like the insect version of keratin. Exactly. What what our like hair and nails are made out yeah. of, they're like version of that. Yah, and so the chitin that makes up their exoskeleton, there's just too much in their wings, and so they're not good at flying, and like they're decent at climbing, but they only need to climb a little bit. But they're just really good at being eaten to the point that it turns out that's actually a strategy for them. And like I said, it is sort <laughs> of the you can't get all of us mentality. It's something that's called predator satiation, which was so interesting, and I had no idea this was the case. But basically, the idea is they all emerge at once, and then the predators have a field day. They eat all the cicadas they can. But after about a week, you don't want to eat any more cicadas. You've been eating cicadas for a week. You're going to start looking for other prey. And it's kind of the same thing I think of as like Thanksgiving leftovers, that you have Thanksgiving, you have the big meal, <laughs> and then you have leftovers for days and days and days. And eventually, you might still have turkey in the fridge, but you don't want to eat turkey anymore. You're done with turkey. And it's the same thing with you know dogs and cicadas or squirrels and cicadas or you know, whatever reptile happens to be in the area, they fill up on cicadas and then they say, bro, I'm done. Now there's still a billion of you have a great time. I'm going to go <laughs> eat something else. Um, and so it, it's the weird thing where like they should have a low score because they get eaten so often, but also it's very smart. And that's more behavior than, than physical adaptation, I suppose. But it's definitely an adaptation, which I think is <laughs> it's it's a silly thing. that it's, it's something the thing to, I, I'm adapted to be eaten so that my friends can survive. But it's, uh, it's very, very interesting. Hey there, we're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of our friends on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are rating ingenuity and aesthetics for cicadas. So stay with us. Soundheap with John Luke Roberts is a real podcast made up of fake podcasts. Like, if you had a cupboard in your lower back, what would you keep in it? So I'm going to say mugs. A little yogurt and a spoon. A small handkerchief that was given to me by my grandmother on her deathbed. Maybe some spare honey? I'd keep batteries in it. I'd pretend to be a toy. If I had a cupboard in my lower back, I'd probably fill it with spines. If you had a cupboard in your lower back, what would you keep in it? Doesn't exist. We made it up for Sound Heap with John Luke Roberts. An award-winning comedy podcast from Maximum Fun, made up of hundreds of stupid podcasts. Listen and subscribe to Sound Heap with John Luke Roberts. Now. Oh, darling, why won't you accept my love? My dear, even though you are a duke, I could never love you. You, you borrowed a book from me and never returned it. <gasps> Save yourself from this terrible fate by listening to Reading Glasses. We'll help you get those borrowed books back and solve all your other reader problems. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Well, I'm glad that you bring up that it is a behavioral thing because that just so happens to tie in very nicely to the next category that we rate animals on, which is ingenuity, behavioral adaptations, things that they're actually doing to solve problems that they face or thrive in their environment, things like that. What do you give cicadas out of 10 for ingenuity? For ingenuity, I have to give cicadas, like, it's got to be 10 out of 10. I have 11 out of 10 written down. <laughs> I'll stick to the actual scoring. It'll be 10 out of 10. They're just incredible, mostly because of this periodical cicada thing with uh, the fact that they can emerge every 13 and 17 years. We can dive into it a little bit. And it's it's a combination of several things, but it's just, it's the most ingenious solution to maintaining your population that I have heard about in the insect kingdom, I think. I think a lot of people feel that same way. Essentially, the way that it works, there's seven species of cicada in the eastern United States that are these periodical cicadas. Some of them emerge every 13 years, and some of them emerge every 17 years. But there's really specific reasons for that number, and that's because they are prime numbers. And I don't know how much you know about prime numbers. I'm not good at math, but I do <laughs> like prime numbers. <laughs> I was just the other day having this conversation with Christian where I was like, I know what prime numbers numbers are. And I know that they're important. I could not for the life of me tell you why. Yeah. Like I don't I don't know what makes them important or relevant. Like I don't know I don't know why everyone freaks out about prime numbers. The only way to get me excited about things like prime numbers is to add biology to it and be like, oh here's why it matters. And I'm like, oh it's for the cicadas. That's great. <laughs> It's the magical cicada number. That. This is a little tangent as well, but when I was in college, you could take a class, you could take either regular statistics to get your degree, or you could take statistics for biology majors. <gasps> and I love
loved it so much. I didn't get to take it, but all of my, a lot of my friends did. And I was in regular statistics and we were learning about like stocks and like, you know, percentages and all of these things. Boo. And it was like regular statistics tomato, stuff. Tomato. And then, yeah, I would go through their, I would go through their homework and it was the same thing, but they'd be looking at it through the lens of like deer populations or like muscle populations in a river. And I was like, why, why can't we just be talking about this? Like it has to be more interesting to everyone in my statistics class to be talking about like freshwater mussels than it does to talk about these abstract but boo put away the stocks give me the bugs <laughs> literally I'm like yeah put away the stocks give me shells i will be happy <laughs> but anyway with these prime numbers so a prime number is just a number that cannot be divided by anything smaller than itself so like if we had the number six it is divisible by the numbers two and three and one and six so if you were to try and divide you know six by two you're gonna get three you divide six by three you're gonna get two but looking at these numbers if you take the number 13 it can't be divided by anything other than the numbers one and 13 and that might be a little hard to understand but it makes more sense to me when you think about it in terms of life cycles for cicadas so if you have a predator and say that it reproduces every two years you know there's one year where it's gathering up all sorts of nutrients we got a little squirrel he's gathering all of his nuts he does that for one year and then the next year he says cool i've had enough nuts to eat i'm gonna have a baby this year and they do that you know more or less every two years there's going to be a little burst in population for predators for those squirrels every two years or so when they all decide it's time to time to have a baby with cicadas they are going to be emerging every 13 years which means that you know they're going to be reproducing they're going to have their babies every 13 years going forward into the future and so the interesting thing if you compare that to the squirrels is that the squirrels are going to have babies on year two year four year six year eight year 10 year 12 and year 14 but they won't have any babies on year 13 and that's when all the cicadas come out. And so the cicadas basically are gaming the system and trying to figure out, I mean, not really, they're, they don't understand that, but they're, <laughs> the, the, the adaptation allows them to game the system against any predators that have any sort of normal breeding cycle, where if they come out on prime numbered years, it's not going to line up with anything. And the predators essentially can't predict when they're coming out because it's such an odd you know, system, such an odd number of years. So that's one reason, which is really, really cool. It means that they can't line up with predators. But the other reason means that they can't line up with each other, which is amazing. Mm. So they can't compete with other cicadas. If there's some, you know, groups that come out every 13 years or some groups that come out every 17 years, they're only going to line up once every 200 something years because they'll only actually line up when you do 13 times 17, which is I think it's 221. So, you know, every 221 years, you get the 13 and 17 years coming out at the same time, but otherwise it's just all staggered. So each group of cicadas is able to survive successfully and not compete with anybody else and not attract a large group of predators. And it's just, it's amazing that a group of bugs who realistically do not have that many brain cells are able to, <laughs> to get to this point. And it's all through adaptation and it's all through basically trial and error until, you know, it gets to the, this point in evolution where they come out, you know, every, every 17 or 13 years. But it's absolutely incredible to me. And it's the most ingenious thing that I've seen. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating because I guess the ecosystem couldn't handle all of the cicadas coming out at once. Like, that's oh, too absolutely. many. We don't have enough trees. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. And it would just be, they would all perish <laughs> immediately. They all came out, they, they'd overwhelm all the trees and everything. And it's been really interesting. I dug into just some of the reasons that, the, how they got to the point that they got. And the idea is that the entire eastern United States was covered in glaciers, the glaciers moved away. And then at some point, there probably was a group of cicadas in the eastern United States that all came out at the exact same time but of course that's going to cause competition that's going to cause these <laughs> they were like we can't keep doing this they, you guys exactly. like, we got to figure out something else something's got to change and so the idea is that if there were little shocks to the climate over time in a certain area if it got particularly cold one year or it got really warm and nice one year some of the cicadas in that population would come out a year early or two years early or four years early and so then slowly over time they figured out this system so that all across the eastern United States, there are these different broods of cicadas where they will come out on different years. And they're 
it's theorized that there might have been a point where it was every year there was a different area of the United States. There was a different brood where, you know, they would emerge that year. And then the next year, a brood down south would emerge. And the next year, a brood, you know, out east would emerge. And that's not the case anymore. There's some broods that have gone extinct. There's some broods that there's not good evidence ever really existed. But currently, there are, I believe it's 15, 15 broods that currently exist that are emerging in this weird cycle where they're all set off from each other and usually they kind of stick to their territory and they stick to their timeline and they only come out when it's time for them to come out. And so they've figured out this whole kind of like timeshare system where they, you know, <laughs> it's 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 my time to come out, guys. So you got you to gotta wait a couple of years and they all, they all do. Mom said it's my turn on the surface. You have to share. <laughs> Mom said it's my turn to scream. <laughs> I wish I could get my kids to agree on a turn, like a turn-based screaming cycle. <laughs> it's my turn with the screaming stick, Mom. <laughs> I do need to implement some sort of screaming device. Like as long as you're holding this, <laughs> as long as you're holding this, you can scream. You just got to make a really nice, like, soundproof, uh, like one of those recording studios. It's a soundproof box. And then you're like, yep, this is the screaming box. When it's your turn, you get to go in and play. It's great. You get to scream as loud as you want. We could go full cicada, and I could tell them they could scream as much as they want in 13 years. <laughs> but tell you what, when that 13 years comes around, you might pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? The older one's going to be out of my house by then, so that's we'll be fair. fine. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to come back and just be like, Bomb, it's time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the moles are surfacing. This is not good. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that there's some interesting, like, fossil record or some interesting paleontology beyond, like, the history of cicadas. Was there was there anything in that that really jumped out at you that really, like, caught your eye? Yeah. So um, the interesting thing for me about that, about the paleontology of cicadas, is just that it really reveals how much we don't know about them. Mm. One of the cool things that I've been seeing in all of the papers that I've been reading is that there's these researchers that get really excited anytime there's a big emergence of one of these cicada broods because they finally get a chance to study them. The rest of the time, we know that they're there, but it's really hard to know exactly where to look for cicadas underground. And of course, I'm not a cicada scientist. I'm sure that there are <laughs> methods that they have. They know there's going to be particular areas to find them. But, you know, it's hard to study any organism that's been 17 years underground yeah also you mentioned that like they're larvae that whole time like you're not even yeah, going to oh, get exactly. to see them in their adult form until it's like the right window of time for them they're and they're in their adult form for like two weeks usually or maybe up to a month and so it's yeah a very very specific study cycle and i've read about cicada scientists that literally will just travel the country and every summer will be in a different area their study site is a different area of the country because that's where that brood is emerging that year and so they just have kind of this like cyclical study pattern where they follow the cicadas and they they go around and see them all i wonder if this like i'm veering away from the paleontology thing real quick just to follow this little train of thought where my brain went but i wonder if this sort of like seclusion between broods like, you know they're the same species but like this whole population only comes out at this time and they don't cross paths with the other population i wonder if that's the sort of thing where like over time isolates them from each other enough that you could see them adapt in different ways. You and I have such similar brains. Cause that's exactly <laughs> what I was wondering about. So I looked into this because I, that's exactly the thought that I had. As I said, these, these individual populations are on separate cycles and we know that's how evolution works, right? That if a population is separated from another population over time, there's going to be genetic differences that occur over time and eventually that usually leads to speciation, right? So that was my thought is that maybe every brood is a different species, you know, like that somehow that works out and it turns out that that's not how it works at all and that was super weird to me. <laughs> so it turns out that each brood has different species of cicada within it. And so the broods aren't separated out by species. They actually contain multiple different species. And it just happens that these multiple species live in the same area. And so they all emerge at the same time and will mate with only members of their own species, which makes sense oh. there. But then looking at, you know, over time, you would think eventually they're separated out by time. These individual seven species are going to start to diverge. And 
that is the going theory for it, but they don't have enough information yet to fully know that that's how it works. There was a paper that I was reading about one of the more recently discovered species. There were six known, and then this was the seventh one that was discovered within another species. They thought they were all the same, and then they they realized that the species actually should be split into two. But the issue is that these cicadas... I mentioned the glaciation in the eastern United States. These cicadas have only been like this for the last couple tens of thousands of years. So there's not a great fossil record for cicadas specifically in the eastern United States looking at you know how different species have evolved. There's not great written records in terms of looking at like species to species. A lot of this was within the last like hundred years that these species were described. There are written records talking about, oh, this was a cicada year in 1633. All these cicadas came out and it was crazy and everyone was really <laughs> upset about all these giant bugs that came but they weren't studying, you know, the species specifically. I guess in the 1600s, that would have been like, oh, this is a Bible plague. Like, Oh, for sure. This is the devil. I have a, a written account. It was William Bradford, who was the governor of the Plymouth Colony. And that's where I got 1633 from specifically. It was basically one of their first years here. They'd only been here for a little bit. They got here, I think, in 1620. And they've been here for like 13 years. And then he was talking to the Native Americans in the area. And the Native Americans, of course, had been here for so long before the the white colonists had come and so they basically sidled up to the the white colonists of the plymouth colony and they were like hey just so you're aware there's gonna be a bunch of bugs coming (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna get real loud here in a minute so just be prepared for that so the 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 quote from him says it is to be observed that the spring before this sickness because there was a, a a sickness among the colony and the neighboring native americans but it's to be observed that the spring before this thick sickness there was a numerous company of flies which were like for bigness unto wasps or bumblebees. They came out of little holes in the ground and diddied up the green things and made such a constant yelling noise as made the woods ring of them and ready to deafen the hearers. They were not any seen or heard by the English in this country before this time, but the Indians told them that sickness would follow, and so it did. Very hot. <laughs> very hot. <laughs> and I just, very also hot. Also, as a side <laughs> note, it's so hot. <laughs> And I just, I love it so much that it was just, it was clear the Native Americans were like, hey, you guys aren't ready for this yet. Like so many things. And They're like, this you is, guys are going to hate this. I'm so gonna, sorry. You're going to hate this so much. <laughs> <laughs> just, it is really interesting though, because I don't know specifically about, I think they, I remember reading about the colony as well, but Native Americans would use it as a, as a food source. They used the cicadas as a food source because they were able to track the numbers and they knew when the cicadas were coming and were able to depend on them, which was, was really interesting to me. And so it might even been a moment of, you know, the Plymouth Colony was not doing great at that time. So they might have said, hey, these cicadas are coming. They are pretty good to eat if you'd like to. But That's free protein. Yeah, honestly, it's free. It's free. What you going <laughs> to do? Just munch on them. Yeah. You can't farm, so... With the paleontology, we were uh, talking just about the fossil record for them. So there is not a great fossil record, as far as I know, in the United States because the glaciers came down and scraped all the rocks away. And so you can't see immediately how these populations formed. But they did, like I said, discover that that new seventh species of cicada. And it was a very complicated paper to read through, so I won't go through the entire thing right now. But basically the idea is that that is how that population emerged was through these broods. And that the seventh species um, is as a result of, they called it, what was it? It was it was like temporal separation or something along those lines. That because these populations hadn't bred together for so long, they were separated and then they started to become different species. It is so like philosophically fascinating to me to think that like they share a space. They're there. They're in the same place at the same time. Yeah. And they just don't cross paths. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Even this year is going to be a double brood year. So it's broods 13 and 19 are going to be emerging this year at the same time. Brood 13, which the brood names are so confusing. We might be able to get into that. But brood 13 is a 17-year cicada and brood 19 is a 13-year cicada. But because they're these separate times, they're emerging in different, different periods, the last time that these two groups emerged at the same time was 1803 
which is 221 years ago. And it's so insane to me. Obviously, it's different cicadas. It's not as if they're coming out and be like, oh, I haven't seen you in 221 years. But like, <laughs> they have no idea that there's this whole other population of cicadas that occupy some of the same territory that they do. <laughs> they both come out of the ground and see each other. They're like, ah, who are you? <laughs> My parents didn't tell you about me. I'm like, what, what's going on? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> You don't, you don't go here. Why are you here? <laughs> it's just like, this is my tree. This is where I was supposed to go. But I feel like it's like the, the premise for a Pixar movie where it's just like, it's there's someone new in the neighborhood and they <laughs> there's they look like you, but they're also a little different. And It actually reminds me so much of this episode of the show on Cartoon Network called Craig of the Creek, which is an incredibly adorable little show that I loved a bit. And in this show, the like main character group of kids come across like things left behind by this other kid who they know comes to the same creek that they play at but is never there at the same time as them and they assume that means it's because she's like from a different dimension like from a different <laughs> universe eventually it's revealed that she's just homeschooled so she comes to the creek while the kids are at school but they're they're never there at the same time so they communicate like by like leaving notes to each other and they think that they're like time traveling so it's like it's like the lake house but with with a creek like <laughs> they just never see each other so they being kids naturally they assume they're like must be from a different universe must be that's that's the only possible explanation for it that's what it, the cicadas remind me of though like just never never crossing paths have no idea that there's so many more out there like you in the same space as you that you just don't see i love it there's I feel like, honestly, we should go tell them. We should prepare them before it happens. Someone needs to go to Illinois and just be like, hey, just so you guys are aware, there is going to be another group coming out. You can you can do this. You can be together. You did it once before in the past. We're pretty sure. So you should be okay. Do they seem to like be chill with each other when that happens? Or are they like, absolutely not? As far as I can tell, yeah. There was a lot of things I read about speciation for cicadas that a lot of times, one of the ways that you can tell species, it's similar to birds, where you know, even they look superficially really similar. Uh, another way that species will form is through different calls. So they have literally just like different hertz, different levels of sound, the different pitches that they're singing. And so it's sort of the, almost like a similar thing with like fireflies, I think, too, where they you know, will flash different lights for different species. And so they might know that the other ones are around but they say oh that's that population over there i'm not interested in that so they don't uh yeah they don't i don't think interact very much probably other than there might be a little bit of scuffles over the best tree or something but no this one's for brood 13 no go away go away <laughs> maybe that's what we need to do we need to set out distinct boundaries for them all and be like yes we're checking in brood 13 here at this tree excellent excellent uh can i see your reservation please <laughs> sir I'm so sorry, you're going to need a photo ID. Oh, you're only 13. No, we can't let you in. Okay. <laughs> you should have gotten an email. Um, do you have a QR code I can scan, perhaps? We could really bring the cicadas up to this century, I think. I think that's that's really what's needed. They need some more organization. <laughs> like we mentioned earlier, like when these emergences happen, a lot of times you see cicadas depicted a lot more in art. I've been seeing them in jewelry a lot. Yeah. Also, like they leave behind these, um, you mentioned that they go through a lot of molts during their life cycle, which leaves behind these like ghostly looking husk, like the empty shells behind, which I know people collect and mm -hmm. use as, as part of art and stuff like that. So this brings us to our final category we rate animals on, which is aesthetics. Just how nice this animal is to look at. Um, I could see with it being a bug, depending on how you feel about bugs, you could go either way on this. But what do you give cicadas out of 10 for aesthetics? So I personally give cicadas 10 out of 10 for aesthetics. I absolutely love them. I think they are so cute. It's funny that you mentioned the molts. I actually have a box next to me that is full of all of my cicada molts and a oh. few of my, my preserved cicadas because I just, I'm always very misfrizzle about any sort of a science topic that I'm talking about. I have a lot of different like themed shirts and things that I'll wear for different <laughs> presentations, but anytime I can have a prop, I love a good prop. And so I've just been playing with one of the cicada molts right here. And like looking at the little nymph stage, they've just got these tiny little glassy eyes and like just these tiny little claws out front and they're just, they're adorable. And then I also, I don't have any periodical cicadas, but I have an annual cicada that's uh, sitting right here, obviously a, a preserved one, but they're just these really, really beautiful colors. They've got like this olive green on their back and their wings are kind of like a lime green. And then the, the periodical ones are even prettier in my opinion. They're like this jet black 
black and they have these orange eyes and these orange wings and they're just they're just sharp insects they look really really cool on the topic of art as well i've actually used cicadas to make some art as well so even if we're thinking about aesthetics like i i personally have been inspired by cicadas and so i feel like we gotta <laughs> give them a little a little boost for that i mean they feel like such like little muses because there's mystery to them they got the big cartoony eyes which you know a lot of insects don't necessarily have the cute face factor but i feel like they have the cute face factor that's really working in their favor they're nice and chunky you know it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not demanding to think of a cicada as cute no, and there's so many different options. I don't know if you've seen the picture that goes around online every once in a while, but there's somebody who made, it was like a samurai mech, basically, like a samurai-themed mech suit, but they made it out of cicada shells. Oh my gosh. And it's incredible. It is, that is absolutely so amazing. And I saw that picture, and that was what inspired me actually to make some of my cicada-themed art. I ended up making a diorama during the, the Bruton Emergence that I called Cicadas Playing Poker. Aww. And so it's a little diorama of all the cicada shells are sitting around a table. They all have little cards in their hands. And like, it's, you know, it's a super weird thing, but like, it's just, there's such a mystery about them and they are such odd animals that looking at it, I'm like, you can't help but be inspired. You can't help but want to do something. I did look up cicada armor, and I did find an image that looks like a Dark Souls boss, I think. It's such an Elden Ring-looking dude. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture right now, too. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not cool with all the leggy bits, don't look up this picture, because it's quite angular. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the picture that I'm seeing right now, they took it from Reddit, and it's the Reddit called Oddly Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> It does. It kind of gives you that feeling where you're like ick, but then for a minute you're like, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, but it'd be a very cool character in a video game or something. Like it just it gives you yeah all sorts of inspiration. Well, Pokemon liked cicadas so much they did them twice. Yeah, it's true. They did two different cicada lines. You got um the Paris line, which is I always thought was crabs, but it's not. It's cicadas. <laughs> is it? I didn't realize that. Yeah, the Paris and Parasect, apparently they're based on a fungus that can grow on cicadas. That's what I was just wondering. Yeah, because they've got those mushrooms growing on them. And I've got, I, we can talk about that fungus if you want to. Oh, really? It's a little, a little intense, but it's pretty cool. That's, it's probably the basis for what the Pokemon is based on. Yeah, which is insane because it's a very intense fungus. So I think it's funny that a, a children's character, effectively a children's cartoon <laughs> character, is, is based off of this fungus. Does this hurt the cicada? Well, it should, but it doesn't. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a fungus that's called Massospora cicadinia. There's a lot of stuff that can't infect cicadas as a little tangent. They're actually, their wings are antimicrobial, which is super weird. They have these little structures that um, a lot of insect wings actually have, it turns out, because if a cicada were to get a bacterial infection, bacteria don't weigh much to us, but they weigh a lot to a bug. And mm. so if there's bacteria growing all over the cicada, it's hard for it to fly, it's hard for it to move. So their wings have the, these like little stabby structures that hit the bacteria and the bacteria will break open and then um, just like basically get brushed off the wing. So it's hard to infect a cicada with a lot of stuff, but not with this fungus. This is just a quick content warning. The next part of this discussion is a little bit graphic. It includes a description of the damage that this parasitic fungus causes to the cicada's body, as well as references to psychedelic compounds. So if you would rather not hear this part, please fast forward three minutes and 45 seconds. Thank you. It goes like right alongside with their life cycle. So when they emerge out of the soil, they'll get hit with some of these spores from this fungus. And the fungus will hang out inside the cicada for a little bit. But once they go through that final molt and they start to, you know, like fly around being adult cicadas, it starts growing inside of the cicada. And so there's, you know, some funguses that you hear about. A lot of people, I think, know the... Um, Oh, what is the one that's, uh, it's the last of us now. Everyone keeps talking about. Cordyceps. Cordyceps. Yeah, yeah. thank you. And so it's kind of similar to that where it starts growing inside of the insect and starts making them do kind of weird things. In this case, the Massospora fungus grows kind of backwards through the cicada until it eventually emerges out of the rear end of the cicada is probably the best way to say it. It causes their abdomen to fall off and become replaced 
by this mushroom um, or by, by this fungal body. So that's terrifying, and you would think that would hurt a lot, but what it turns out is that this fungus is actually psychedelic. It produces the um, thing psilocybin, which is the same thing that's inside like magic mushrooms and is in a lot of these like psychedelic mushrooms. And so the theory is it produces this to basically stop the cicada from freaking out and stop the cicada from feeling a lot of pain. So the cicadas are flying around with a mushroom for a rear end, just not feeling a thing in the world looking at all the pretty colors <laughs> well they're they're feeling something but maybe not the they're feeling something. maybe not their abdomen falling off <laughs> so that's very weird to start off with but then it gets even weirder than that because it also makes them very very interested in finding mates because of course this fungus wants to spread and so these cicadas have all sorts of interesting behaviors when they're infected with this fungus that other cicadas don't have we talked a little bit about when cicadas are trying to find a mate they'll shake their wings and they'll you know try and attract uh, cicadas of the opposite sex so that they can create offspring but the way that this works for the cicadas of course a fungus doesn't care who you're attracting and so <laughs> male cicadas will try and attract other male cicadas female cicadas will try and attract other female cicadas it's all fair game it's it's all fair game because the fungus is just trying to find any cicada it can and so eventually the two cicadas will end up trying to mate and the fungus will release its spores onto the uninfected cicada and then that uninfected cicada as the fungus grows on it that uninfected cicada will start flying around and you know just doing cicada things but it'll drop spores all over the ground and then the next time that the cicadas emerge they get infected by those spores again and there was a researcher that this was just during the brood 10 emergence that this was really studied effectively so just the last couple of years but the researcher referred to them as flying salt shakers of death because they were <laughs> well, you know they have these little things on their their rear ends that they're shaking and they're dropping all these spores everywhere and causing mass cicada destruction basically with <laughs> with their fungus but it's uh it's an it's an incredible relationship there's a really great picture on wikipedia that you can look through that shows uh the entire life cycle of this fungus and mostly i love it because there's like 30 cicadas in it to show all these complicated relationships between how it all goes but it's uh it's a it's a fascinating life cycle it's absolutely bonkers right because the fungus would kind of rely on the cicada for its life cycle yeah oh absolutely and i i love it too then especially that there's a pokemon based off of that <laughs> yeah so the i think the idea with with paris and parasect is that you know it starts off as just a pretty benign little like cicada dude with just a couple of little mushrooms growing on its back but by the time it evolves you know its entire on parasect it's like the top half of its body but it's basically like you mentioned like the whole abdomen is replaced by this giant fungus oh my goodness and its eyes go white yeah it's eyes. i'm looking at pictures of it right now yeah which just... i mean like in anime and stuff like eyes with no pupils are often used to like suggest like possession or like yeah like a, an emptiness to it which is cool it's like implies that it's been like overtaken by this fungus and this this little guy's just waving. I'm looking at a picture of Parasex just like happily waving. Just being like, yeah, no, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. <laughs> it's wild that they came out with that in the first generation no, of Pokemon. They were like right out of the gate. <laughs> that's like Cubone level of just like sad. <laughs> that was the first that was the first impression. They were like, Yeah, we're like, putting you know, our best you know foot what forward. We should do? <laughs> you know what you know what's really cool? Although I guess it was Pokemon was all based in like bug collecting, wasn't it? In in Japan, that was the idea. Yeah, like well, the creator Satoshi Tajiri was like a bug collector in his childhood. That makes sense. And so he like had this like inspiration. So you can see so many little like inclusions of bug nerd. <laughs> throughout. Oh man! And then and then there's another wave in Gen three. You've got Ninkata, which evolves into two different Pokemon which is really, really cool. It evolves into Ninjask, which is like a regular flighted cicada, or Shedinja, which is a ghost type, and it's like the husk of the cicada that's left behind after That's so cool. And these, I'm it's looking so at pictures cool. of Ninkata right now, too, and it literally, they look exactly like the nymph and then, yeah, the, the molt in the, in the final adult form. That's so interesting. It's so cool. I love that. I love any sort of opportunity to talk about like cool ecology inspirations in Pokemon. And you could tell they were having fun with cicadas. Oh, yeah. They were really just like, yeah, what, what weird nature things can we, can we adapt? <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, Nick, I have learned a lot 
There were a lot of things I didn't expect to learn that I learned anyway. We've had a delightful time here learning about cicadas. Before we wrap up for today, I would love it if you could let our friends listening know where they can go from here. Do you have any projects that you're working on right now? Places where you want people to find you on social media or anything like that? Where can people go next? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the main place I am on social media is on TikTok, and that's just at Nick underscore Van Acker. I will warn you that some of the things that I create are a little more, I don't want to say adult oriented, but basically I like to talk about just funny and weird science. And a lot of time that stuff is things like the cicada fungus that we were talking about. So there's just all sorts of different stuff, but I just like to create little comedy videos on there. And that's the main place that I am publicly. Like I said, I do work at a children's museum but i prefer that you don't follow me there because that's where i work (laughs) (laughs) that'd be be a little odd but if you happen to run into me that would be amazing and of course i'd love to say hello but yeah that's it's mainly it a lot of the projects that i work on are yeah just my just my little videos but sometimes i'll post about different things if i'm you know working on books or if i'm working on exhibits or i do some consulting work for different projects and i'm always a big fan of of sharing the the cool things that we're doing in the science world the memes are so good you guys the memes are so good thank you because <laughs> that's where that's where i found you from is from memes on tiktok and i was like this is spectacular i love a good eco meme <laughs> and as do i and i felt like there weren't enough of them and so i and luckily we're not at that point anymore i feel like there's a lot of really great eco meme creators on tiktok right now and so it's mostly me just being on there and saying oh man i wish i thought of that that's hilarious <laughs> it's a it's a thriving ecosystem of creators out there absolutely well nick has been a delight thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your love of the insect world with us we will talk to you later bye bye Thank you so much for listening. I hope that the cicada has burrowed deep into your heart where it will quietly spend the next 13 or 17 years. If you liked what you heard, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice, like Highly Pleased, who said on Apple Podcasts, I grew up loving animals, and this has been a beautiful channel to nourish that love and continue to learn about all animals, great and small. This wholesome podcast is thoughtful and hilarious as they navigate rating each animal. In addition to the animal facts, they add a little sprinkles of geek culture, which I personally enjoy as a Pokemon fanatic. Thank you for all you do. And I look forward to listening to many more episodes. Thank you for the high praises. That really means a lot to us. And I really hope that you enjoyed all the Pokemon talk in this episode. If you want to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, TikTok. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can also send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other amazing shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.